Well, I often find it helpful to reflect on the origins of words. The English word consume is rooted in the Latin consumere, meaning to devour, waste, exhaust. We tend to think of this primarily in terms of our consuming things. However, in English usage until fairly recently, consumption was also the name of the wasting sickness, tuberculosis. So it turns out the word can work both ways. Certain kinds of consumption can consume us. We're the ones who end up devoured or wasted, as we still say of those who've consumed excessive quantities of alcohol. (laughs) And in this regard, the notion of consumption seems to function a bit like the notion of possession. Again, our culture tends to think of our agency. We possess things and are in possession of what we own. But an older usage understood that we may also be possessed. Possessed by demons, possessed by pride, anger, avarice or illusion. Possessed like King Midas or Ebenezer Scrooge by our possessions themselves. So built into the concepts of both consumption and possession, in other words, is a kind of double valence. To some extent, we are agents, we consume, we possess. But at a certain point, we're liable to become subject to that which we have consumed or been possessed by. It's interesting that we seem largely to have forgotten this ambiguity. At some point in the 18th century, writes one scholar, the word consumer began to be used by political economists without the negative connotation. And in our day, growth in consumer power has become a primary goal of economic and political life. I'm interested, Peter, maybe to explore later that second mark of the Treasury framework to maximise consumption. Yeah. We're becoming more and more aware, I think, that our patterns of consumption are indeed consuming us. In order to serve the consumer economy, whose necessary growth, and again, this might be something we talk about, but whose seemingly necessary growth demands relentless increase in what's called productivity, our time, mental energy, personal relationships and health as well as our freedom to engage in so-called non-productive activity, seem to be increasingly consumed or at least compromised. I think many people at work feel like the necessity to keep producing more is consuming their time, their energy. And likewise sacrificed are the natural world, the poor, and those members of our community who fail for whatever reason to keep up the pace. And so today, obviously, we're exploring these these conundrums and seeking to imagine what else might be possible. And I'd like to offer some reflections on what shifts might be required in the ways we imagine being human, how we understand our purpose and meaning. As Linda pointed out earlier, it's not just that we live in a consumer economy, it's that we've been constructed 
to quite a large extent at the level of our personal identity as consumers and producers. And this way of seeing ourselves has a powerful hold on us. It's operative at a surprisingly deep level. I've been discovering this for myself recently. Some of you know that over the past couple of years, I've sought to commit to a regular practice of a half-day retreat. And this came out of a felt need simply to stop once a week, to spend time listening and in solitude, to make space for simply being with God and alive in the world. It sounds simple. It sounds like bliss. And that's been the problem. For many months, every time I embarked on this mini-retreat, I felt assailed by guilt and convicted of self-indulgence. Other people don't have this luxury, I told myself. They're busy at work, being productive. How can I justify wasting this amount of time doing nothing? Well, now, given that I'm already committed to the intrinsic value of contemplation, the ferocity and tenacity of this inner struggle suggests to me that there is more to transforming our habits of consumption and our associated compulsions to produce than changing our economic arrangements. It suggests that unless we start to inhabit a different story about what human life is for, what makes it worthwhile, and what it means to be responsible to it, then not only will it be difficult to make any of the systemic changes we decide we want to make, but on their own, such changes will be insufficient really to liberate us. So what might a different story be? Well, I don't propose to offer a comprehensive account of this, but two elements at least seem important. One is to do with renewing our experience of life as gift and daring to let ourselves receive it. The other involves reimagining our human vocation in the light of this. And I'm going to say a bit more about each of these elements. So life as gift. We human beings necessarily consume things to survive and to create. We make use of the world's goods to eat, shelter and clothe ourselves, to help us enjoy and express ourselves and to explore life's meaning through art, festivals, sacred rites. That's one thing. And in traditional societies, what's consumed for these purposes is often treated consciously as gift. You think of the honour done to the animal killed for the feast or the ritual surrounding the harvest, or the sending out of the fishing fleet, or practising art. In such contexts, consumption becomes a means of reverencing and connecting to the natural world. It helps generate community and a shared realm of meaning. And consumption here, we might say, is a way of participating in and receiving life's gift, life's giving. Consumerism as a lifestyle, however, seems to occur in a different spirit. Here the process of consuming 
tends to be abstracted from the particular goods consumed and become almost an end in itself, a means of therapy, entertainment and distraction. And rather than connecting us and making us conscious of gift, this kind of consumption seems instead to engender a spirit of entitlement or taking. I think of those ads that assure us we're worth it. (laughs) Contemporary consumers are often oblivious to the real cost of what we call our resource use, distanced from our impact on the natural world and isolated from community. And this is a downward spiral because the more we lose by way of connection with the rest of life, the more our consumption must compensate for. So it becomes habitual or compulsive rather than truly mindful, nourishing or generative of meaning. And almost paradoxically, it seems the more we take in this way, the less able we're able to receive, the less able we are to receive what is simply given. And I I feel like for myself, what my retreat experience revealed was how little I felt I was allowed to receive what I already had, time, the beauty of place, stillness within. One way of expressing this in a Christian idiom is to say that our consumer culture seems to alienate us from our creaturehood, from being those who are given life freely and invited, at least in part, to live simply as recipients, part of a larger whole. Now, I don't want to imply that contemporary consumerism alone is to blame for this alienation. At least according to the biblical tradition, there's been a perennial temptation for human beings to resist the experience of dependence, to withhold gratitude for what we have received, and to grasp at being. We seek to secure and possess life on our terms and so master the felt vulnerability of living as creatures, fragile and contingent. The Genesis stories, Adam and Eve taking the apple to possess the knowledge of good and evil, the Tower of Babel reaching towards heaven, These can be read as stories of grasping and so, in a sense, as early manifestations of consumerism. But it does seem that our culture has taken our tendency to want to possess life on our terms, to separate ourselves out from the world and the human condition to a whole new level. Indeed, it has cultivated our isolation and distrust and made them productive of things we can consume. We buy income and life insurance because we can't rely on community. We compulsively risk manage and hedge against old age because we're terrified of our fragility and mortality. And what I'm sensing is that there's a connection between our unhealthy patterns of consumption and production and our attenuated capacity to experience life as gift. And could it be that the more we let ourselves really receive, the less driven we'd be to seize 
devour and lay waste to life. But this leads then to the question of what human life is for. If the point is not to produce as much as we can, consume more things and grasp at our own being, then what does it mean to be responsible to the gift of our lives? Well, this question could be addressed at many levels, from the personal to the, the general, and I take the first point of the Treasury Wellbeing Framework, that part of what that is, is to give people the opportunity to live the life that's calling them, that's theirs to live. But for now, I just want to draw out two lines of thought at a more general level that I find nourishing and suggestive in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And the first refers to what's been called humanity's priestly vocation. That is the calling to recognise and give life's gifts back to God in thanksgiving and praise. In Genesis, the first human being is tasked with naming the animals. Notice this isn't mere labelling or categorising, a feature of efficient resource use. <coughs> this is naming in the sense of being present to, discerning each creature's nature. And theologically, this myth connects with the understanding that all things exist by virtue of the word of God. Each existent reality makes visible something of the character of God. And on this account, it's the particular gift and call of conscious, intelligent human beings to recognise and celebrate this wonder. To name the world aright is, in the words of Rowan Williams, to bring to light its character as reflecting God's glory and love. And if we're going to discern things in this depth, that requires taking the time really to attend, relating to the world contemplatively, with a loving regard. In our busy lives, this space for attending to and loving the world at depth may seem like a luxury we can't afford. But Williams remarks that the Russian Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann goes so far as to suggest that the refusal of this calling is the very heart of original sin, which is the replacement of priestly naming and blessing by the attitude of the consumer who seeks only to dominate and absorb things in such a way that it becomes impossible to treat them as gift. And on this view, an essential part of a properly human life is to attend to, discern and celebrate the rest of creation, coming to know it and God's presence through it. And then second, and relatedly, there's the human vocation to participate in life's transmission and renewal. Again, an early biblical expression of this vocation is found in the story of Noah, a righteous man called by God at a time of rising sea levels to build an ark by means of which not only he and his family but breeding pairs of all the animals could survive the coming deluge. 
And when giving Noah his instructions, God insists that of every kind of living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. And this story, Williams notes, is clearly about how the saving of the human future is inseparable from securing a future for all living things. Noah is made responsible for the continuation of what we would call an ecosystem. On this account, we do justice to what we are as human beings when we seek to do justice to the diversity of life around us. We become what we are supposed to be when we assume our responsibility for life continuing on earth. Well, for us, as we face the difficult, urgent, ecological times we're in, exercising this responsibility requires radical action at both personal and societal levels, including... I would say, drastically transforming our patterns of consumption. But it's an essential insight of the biblical tradition that the two aspects of our human vocation within creation go together. Our responsibility for the continuance of life cannot be fulfilled while we're inattentive and lacking gratitude for the gift that life is, expending it heedlessly, rather than reverencing and delighting in it. And I'm struck by what seem to be parallels here with the vision of Indigenous Australians who exercise custodianship and care for the land, ensuring its well-being precisely by celebrating and singing it, telling its story and hearing its voice. Well, I said earlier that unless we start to inhabit a different story about what human life is for, what makes it worthwhile and what it means to be responsible to it, then we will struggle to shift our destructive patterns of consumption and production. And the elements I've, I've sketched here, of course, don't deal with questions of if and how we need to reframe our whole economic system our work, the distribution and exchange of necessary goods, and so on. But they do offer an invitation to wonder again about what we're really here for, and so what we want our economic arrangements to reflect and enable. What is vocational? What is truly fulfilling and life-generating for human beings? And if it's not, he who dies with the most toys wins, then what implications must that have for how we organise our social and economic life? And so I just want to conclude with some really brief reflections on what I feel might be some immediate consequences for us. Language matters, I think. It makes a difference whether we think of ourselves as consuming the world's goods 
or maximising efficient use of its resources. The word goods, at least to my ear, retains the connection with gift and the echo of God's delight in creation. The notion of resource seems more distant, encouraging forgetfulness of gift and relatedness. I certainly don't like to think of myself merely as a human resource. Practices matter too. We've already touched in Linda's talk on the contemplative practice of allowing emptiness, intentionally letting go, so as to begin the process of withdrawal from consumerist addiction. Also important are practices of gratitude. These might include saying grace or reverencing before we eat, being mindful of those who made our clothes, gazing lovingly at a tree or a leaf, being more conscious of the independent life of things and so less inclined mindlessly to consume more than we need. And for me, it's also about that weekly retreat day in which I practice what feels at times like civil disobedience. (laughs) Being neither a producer nor a consumer, but simply alive, (laughs) present, responsive. I know such time isn't possible for everyone, but what might it mean for each of us if we began to think of our primary vocation in terms of thanksgiving celebration and nurturing the world's life. Pope Francis has said, there can be no renewal of our relationship with nature without a renewal of humanity itself. There can be no ecology without an adequate anthropology. In a similar vein, I think there can be no transforming of our consumerist culture without a new vision of the human vocation. And so I hope our conversation will be part of us discovering what such an adequate anthropology might be.